All right, how is everybody? Doing well? Everybody having a good week? Yeah? All right. Well, it's good to see everybody. Um, Okay, we are moving on uh, tonight to uh, uh, the table of showbread. So that's where we're going to be examining this evening. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Okay? Father God, tonight as we come together here in this place, we're grateful. Father, and we're thankful for the uh, just... uh, for everyone that's came out to be a part of this, we're thankful for, Father, for your instruction from your word that uh, we ask that it would be a, used as a lamp and as a light here in our lives and in our congregations. Um, Father, I pray that, uh, you know, the things that we've been studying as we have been uh, pulling together this, uh, this pattern that you've given us through your Old Testament to help us understand who we are as Christians, as, as your church, as your holy people, as priests before you and in your service, I, I pray that... Uh, Father, that we can remember the things that we have studied together here in the, over the last several weeks, um, that we uh, just continue to build onto that foundation. Uh, I pray that, uh, Father, that we are honest enough with ourselves to see the areas where this pattern isn't being fully realized in our lives and in our congregations. And, Father, that we can make uh, honest strides there to uh, bring things back to your word and, and to the plan that you've given us. And, Father, we know that it works. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, anything, any substitute to that is not going to. And so uh, I just pray for some conviction there as well. And so, Father, tonight as we examine the table of showbread and, uh, Father, the typology there behind it, the lessons that you've given us through your word, I again pray for honesty and sincerity, that your word, your truth, your message would be, uh, um, would be, be prominent here and, and the priority in our lives. And, uh, Father, just... Uh, um, bless our time here as we continue this. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. All right. Um, okay, well, let's, let's go through this first. So um, let's uh, see how we're doing with our, with our... I changed the color thinking that maybe my pointer would work. And uh, I, well, I tried like dark blue. Nope, no, it doesn't work there either. So anyway, maybe it's the pointer. It's probably the pointer, isn't it? So, okay, so let's start here. So we come into the tabernacle. Uh, what's, what, what, what do we have here? Which altar? Because there's two. Burnt offering. What's it made out? What's, what metal is, is on it? It's bronze, okay? Bronze all day. Sometimes they, it's referred to as the bronze altar. What do we have here? The leafer. The, leafer. <laughs> the bird bath, the holy bird bath. Uh, the laver, the laver. Um, and it's made out of? Okay, uh, well, bronze mirrors that were, that were used. Yeah, very good. Okay, and then so we enter into the tent of meeting. Okay, and uh, what do we have on the north wall? Table of showbread. That's what we'll be talking about tonight. South wall. Lampstand, not a candlestick, right? Lampstand. Okay, and what do we have over here? Altar of incense. So this is sometimes referred to as the golden altar um, because obviously everything in here is made out of gold. And then what do we have here? Veil, and then Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, and then the, the mercy seat of God is on it. Um, and so, you know, so far we've been kind of breaking down, you know, going through piece by piece with the furniture. And uh, every week, you know, we kind of start off with a verse of Scripture that reminds us of our identity in Christ in the position that we have before God. I'm hoping that's what, you know, well, every week we start off with something about being, the, being a priest before God. This is terminology that God has used hoping that we can get the connection between what He was teaching in the Old Testament 
and, and what is the reality for us today. So we, we, in fact, if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are a priest before God. I'm hoping that means more every week when we come together. I'm, I'm hoping we're putting some more emphasis on what that means. Priest comes with responsibility, comes with a better position, right? comes with this privilege that we have. It means that we are expected to serve and to offer worship and service before God. And we do that in His presence. And well, you know, it means that we're holy before you know. So all all these lessons come together, and you know, with each piece of the furniture, there's there's a lot we can talk about with the church. But there is responsibility for the Christian with every part of it. And don't don't lose sight of that. This needs to mean something to you, not just you know. It's easy to go through this and point our fingers at people that don't have the pattern figured out. That's not the goal. Okay, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, maybe that stuff needs pointed out. I'm all for that too. Uh, but, you know, you can't miss yourself in this, okay? And so uh, th- with each part of this, there is responsibility for you. Uh, and, and so we got to see that. All right, 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Um, we, we've, we've used this verse several times now. Ought to be, you know, should be familiar enough. Maybe we can use it without, you know, maybe we've got it memorized by now. Or if not, wouldn't be a bad idea, okay? Uh, Chris brought up a good point about this verse yesterday or last week, and it's something I was hoping we'd start seeing, and, and, and especially when we get into the, there's going to be a lesson specifically on the priesthood, but one of the things that we've seen from the tabernacle and about being a priest is there's lessons in here about what it means to be holy, okay? And who can tell me what that word means? Set apart, right? And so, like I said, you know, it, it's that word holy's become one of those words we're almost scared to use because, you know, we want to be humble. And in, in our humility, it's, it's easy for us to sit back and say, oh, I'm not holy. God made us holy when we became, you know, we, you know, so the word holy means to be set apart. If you're a Christian, you better be. You better be holy. That's the idea, you know. And so to be a saint, to be his called out, to be, you know, but, but with that idea set apart, Okay, the priest was not just set apart so that he could put on a different outfit and go around and tell everybody he was a priest. He was set apart to do something, wasn't he? Right, he was set apart to serve. And so in this verse here, we see that we are a a royal priesthood. Okay, so what? Is there something we're supposed to do because of that? Have we been set apart for something? And what what is that? Yeah, we're, we're to proclaim, right? We have, a, we have a task to do. Now, it doesn't say your preacher, right, became a preacher so that he can proclaim the excellencies, right? It, it's, not, it's not so that your church can. It's not so that you can have a mission group or a ministry group to do that. You, as a priest, have been set apart to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so again, individual responsibility there. And so hoping we're, we're, hoping we're seeing that as we go through this. There's something to do because we're a priest. There's, there's expectations on us. There's something that's going to be acceptable to God and, and that we need to meet, right? Some criteria there, some, some, some things to do. And so, so anyway, we've seen that. So we're, we have access to God. We can draw near, which is, which is tremendous hope for us. And And, you know, we can be something uh, spiritually that we couldn't be physically. So, you know, we've kind of seen that. We've also seen, though, as you go through this, that there are, um, 
there are barriers with everything, right? And so have we seen the barriers every week uh, that there's, there's God set up very physical, physical lines to separate? What, what, what are we separating? The holy from the profane. What's worldly from what's, what's godly, right? What belongs to God from what, what is ordinary. And so all the way through this, we see a barrier to the outer court. We see the barrier with the altar. We see the barrier with the, with the laver and the washing. We see the barrier with the veil. We see the barrier, with the, the barrier with the different materials. We even see it with the way the camp sets up at night. You know, all of these sorts of things are there. And so we're seeing the separation of what's holy and profane. We also seeing the cost for something to be holy, right? The cost because of sin, right? What it does to us, what it does to God, the separation that that creates. And so really important lessons there that that we need to keep being reinforced in our lives. Okay, something else I'm hoping we're seeing. Um, now that we are into the inner, inner uh, the tent of meeting here, we're, we're in the holy place, okay? We're seeing that sin is dealt with outside, Okay, and so I know we talked a lot about that last week, but it's important to keep that in mind. Sin is dealt with at the altar, with the washing. Uh, everything on the inside is not about dealing with your sin. Uh, it's about your relationship with God. Okay, sin is dealt with on the inside. That's why the priest has to wash, right? Because we're done dealing with worldliness and sin. Now we're going to go in and deal with God. And so there has to be a separation, something different. That's important, you know, because we are in this, this tent of meeting right now, and we talked about the lampstand uh, last week. We're going to talk about the showbread tonight. We're going to talk about the incense next. Uh, it's, it's really important as we go through these, these pieces of furniture that we don't forget what they're there for, okay? These things are there, uh, and it's all about having a relationship with God and maintaining that relationship with God. It is not about dealing with sin. Okay, and so that'll come into play tonight as well as, as in the next lesson as well. And so um, the, uh, the lampstand was last week's. And can someone tell me what its purpose was? What its function? Why God had it in the, lamp, in the, in the tabernacle? What, it, what its practical function was? <laughs> Bingo, you guys got it. It shed light on the place in front of it. And what would happen if we would uh, take that out of the tabernacle? What doesn't happen? There's no service, or at least not the way God would want it, right? You'd have to go in trying to figure out how to do it, feel your way around. A lot of churches operating on feelings and, and what feels right, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians operating in the dark, and they don't have to be. You know, and that's, that's something that's important that we need to reiterate with people. A lot of people don't have any confidence in where they stand with God, okay? This, is, this seems to be coming up a lot recently in a lot of conversations I've been having with people. Uh, you know, a lot of people have no assurance of faith, okay? Uh, it's kind of one of those, well, we hope things work out. We'll never really know till we're dead and standing before the judgment bar of the Lord whether, you know, whether we're actually saved or not, uh, that sort of mentality. Anybody ever heard that before? Okay, you know, so that's, that's a sad way to live. I mean, that, that really is a sad way to live. The whole idea of faith is that it's, it's supposed to have the, uh, the conviction, right? This assurance of things that we are hoping for with expectation, right? It's not wishful thinking. Oh, I really hope I get to heaven one day. It's I'm expecting it, right? I'm, I'm hopeful for it and fully expecting it. I mean, you know, that's, that's the idea. And so, you know, we're gonna have this, this expectation. And, um, you know, the, I tell people all the time at, 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 in my congregation, if you, are, if you have doubts 
about where you stand with God, if you have doubts about your salvation, if you have doubts about the plan that God has uh, for our redemption and what you've done or what you haven't done, I mean, why would you waste another moment of your life in doubt when you can open up the book, we can know for sure that you've done what you're supposed to do, that you've obeyed the terms of pardon, you know, that, that, that you've done the things that God has required of you to do. And then at that point, it's all on Him. You know, we, we can fully trust and rely on Him. And so, you know, that lamp is there to make sure we know exactly what we're supposed to do. You know, it takes the guesswork out of it, right? And so use the lamp, right? Keep that light on. Okay, um, and so the next two things that are in here, obviously the, the showbread and the, and, the, and the altar of incense. So let's, let's get on with that tonight. So Exodus chapter 25, this is where we're going to get on to the table of showbread. So this one's a little different because, you know, unlike the other things, um, there's the furniture and then there's what goes on it, right? So this, is, this, is, uh, this one and the incense kind of unique like this because you've got to have the table but then you have to have what goes on the table. And so there's kind of instructions for both of those things. Um, the purpose of the table is what goes on the table. The purpose of the altar of incense is what gets burned on the altar of incense, right? And so um, that's kind of the idea. So let's go to Exodus 25. And uh, we're going to pick up there in verse 23. And read uh, through 30. <clears throat> when you're there, say, got it. All right. You shall make a table, verse 23 there. Um, am I in the right? I'm in the wrong. No, I'm in the right chapter. Yeah, I'm on it. Look at me doubting myself. Okay. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make for it a rim of a handbreadth around it, and you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. You shall make four gold rings for it and put rings on the four corners which are on its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. All right. So, first thing that maybe we ought to bring up about this table is its size. You know, um, when you, we've, we have a model. I'll, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. We have a model tabernacle. It's in the back. We, we're having trouble piecing it together. Okay, this is a handmade ordeal. Okay. This wasn't professionally done. And, uh, and we don't have any professional tabernacle builders. <laughs> so we've had some issues for the last couple of weeks here trying to get it. And I'm trying to soften the blow. Jake's got problems with it. Let's just be honest. Okay, uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, hopefully by the time, you know, in maybe a year or two, we'll get this thing out here. And, uh, and, and, uh, but anyway, when you're looking at a model of it, though, if, if you get a chance to, um, you know, the, one thing that, that, like, the size of it shocks me. Like, I look at it and I think, wow, this thing was not very big. I mean, the whole thing just wasn't very big. And we've, we've talked a bit about that. Um, the one piece of furniture that, that seems bigger to me than maybe I, I would expect is the altar burnt offering. It's a, it's a very large 
I think it's a very large piece of furniture, especially to be hauling around the wilderness and carrying. Um, the, the, altar, the table of showbread is smaller than I would have expected it to be. Okay, and so, you know, if you kind of run the numbers, it's going to be about 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches tall. Okay, it's not, it's not a very big table. I mean, it's way smaller than a, than, a, than a communion table would be. I mean, it's a very, very small. We're talking like a TV tray kind of a thing, okay? It's not very big. Um, one of the reasons why is it's very practical, okay? <laughs> you know, it's, it's there for a purpose. It's to, it's to hold the bread, and that's, that's really all it does. So, um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's made out of acacia wood, Okay, it's, it's overlaid with gold. And we, we'll get that tabernacle model out here. Right? One way, we can duct tape it if we got to. Um, but it'll, you know, and you all, it is holy, holy duct tape, <laughs> you know. Uh, but anyway, we'll get it out here and you all can, you know, uh, take a look at it. Maybe, maybe class project, we'll try to build a better one. No. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, we've got acacia wood. It's overlaid with gold because it's in the tent of meeting. So everything in there is going to have gold on it. So you see that visual separation and barrier. Uh, God, is, God is teaching us in a very real way. We also read there in verse 29, there's dishes, there's pans, there's jars, there's bowls, all pure gold. And then verse 30, it says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. Does anyone have something different than bread of presence there? Showbread? Yours says bread of face? It says Oh, you've got the footnote for the bread of face. Okay. Yeah, so uh, let's, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 24, 5 through 9. It says, Then you shall take fine flour, bake 12 cakes with it, Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel." Verse 9, it shall be for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. Okay, so we've got this bread that has got some different names. So it's the bread of presence. Uh, it's referred to sometimes in the Bible as the bread of face. Uh, it's also referred to in Numbers chapter 4, verse 7 as continual bread. And so, um, you know, so just so, you know, to make this confusing for everybody, it's, it's got several names in the, in the Bible there. So, but the idea is that this is bread that is continually before the face of God and in His presence. Now, you know, let's, uh, let's go over to Numbers chapter 4. Verse 7 and 8. Okay. Over the table, so Numbers 4, 7 and 8. Over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall also spread a cloth of blue and put on it the dishes and the pans, the sacrificial bowls and the jars for the drink offering, and the continual bread shall be on it. 
They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with the cover of porpoise skin and they shall insert its poles. Now, we are in Numbers chapter 4 going over the instructions for how to transport the tabernacle and its furniture when they are wandering through the wilderness. I bring this up because I think it's worth mentioning. God was very specific. This bread should be in my, uh, before me and in my presence. How often? At all times. It is continually before me. It is an everlasting covenant. It's, 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 you know, so even when they're transporting it, what's, what's still on the table? The bread. Now they put back everything else up on there too, but the bread, you know, even when they're transporting, it seems like the bread is still there, right? It kind of reminds us of the altar, you know, uh, the, the coal, the fire continually burning, right? I mean, the, they, when they're, they're moving the lamp stand, the lamp isn't burning, you know, I mean, the, the, they're not still offering incense, but when they're on the journey, the bread's still on the table always, and um, you know, those, so anyway, that's, that's something that's important. Uh, I've, I've read, um, you know, Jewish, now this, you're not going to find this in the Bible, but according to Jewish culture and history, apparently they, the, the Old Testament priests were just very, very, took, you know, a lot of elaborate, painstakingly detailed, uh, you know, steps to make sure that like it would take like four or five of these guys to come in and change out the bread because they wanted to make sure that you remove the old loaves and put in the new ones simultaneously at exactly the same moment. You know, they don't want there ever to be not having this, this bread on the table. So we take the old one off at the same moment we let, you know. So anyway, they were very, very specific about that. And, and I would be too because the instruction is continually right before me at all times and so that's that's the that's the that's the plan and so the idea is that this bread is in the face of God it's it's before God's face it's in his presence it's continually before God uh, all the time now why is it 12 loaves yeah, one loaf for each of the tribes of Israel. Okay, and so these, these loaves are all baked. Um, you know, it says uh, two-tenths of an ephah for two omers of flour. Uh, you want a headache, go back and try to figure out the baking capacities of, you know, omers and ephahs and, uh, you know, stuff like that. But anyway, it comes out to a, one omer is like nine and a half cups. So this is the equivalent of like four liters of flour. Does that sound? Yes. Um, that seemed like a lot. I don't bake bread. I don't, you know, that seems like a lot to me. But it's 12 large loaves of bread. So, um, and so anyway, they would, they would mix that with olive oil. It would be baked. These would be, my point is these would be large loaves of bread. And they would, you know, fill the table. And, you know, these were, these were baked weekly. Okay, placed in two stacks of six on top of the table. And on every Sabbath day, the bread was changed every week. So the priest would eat the old bread and whatever wasn't eaten, they, they'd burn. Uh, and that would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's the frankincense that went in there. Frankincense, kind of do a study on that, usually represents holiness and righteousness. And so that was added to the bread as a memorial portion. And then this, this you know, so whatever wasn't eaten was, 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 uh, was burned. And then the priest would, you know, like I said, there's 12 brand new cakes that would be placed on the table and are in the presence of God before his face continually through the week. Okay, and so that's, that's all important to know. Now, um, where is the table at? 
Okay, but it's specifically, it's, it's in the holy place. It's, it's, again, the bread and the table is in his presence. Now, who's allowed to participate and partake of this bread? Priests. So the average Israelite, they get to be a part of this? No. Gentile? The, the God-fearing Greek? No. Okay, and so it's only the priests that can participate in this. Okay, and so, it, you know, it, it's important because this bread was not bread for everybody. Okay, it wasn't a, it, it, was, it was not for everybody because not everybody is allowed in the presence of the Lord. It cannot be a meal for the people who don't have access to it. Now, why is that important for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I keep bringing this up and, and I, I know I have a tendency to just beat a point into the ground and you're probably maybe sick of hearing it, but we as a church have got to stop inviting people to do things that they aren't able to do, right? We have got a lot, we've got to quit giving access to things to people that they don't have access to. Now, I, I'm not promoting closed communion, okay? Don't get me wrong. If, if somebody, if you pass around, you know, communion on a Sunday and there's someone who's not a Christian and they take it, okay, should we stop them? Okay, I'll give you a scenario, okay? Obviously, the connection, I just ruined the ending, is, uh, is we're going to connect this to the Lord's Supper, obviously, but uh, you all kind of were in on that already. But, uh, but I'll give you a scenario. Years ago, we had a, we had a lady in Glencoe that would, uh, would come in and clean every week, and, and um, she had a grandson that, she, that lived with her, and, uh, and he was a rowdy kid. I mean, he was, he was pretty rough. Uh, but he was young, you know, he was probably about eight, eight, nine years old. And, uh, you know, part of what they would do is, is they would clean up the communion trays. And so there's, you know, on a Monday that maybe or on a Sunday afternoon, they'd come in, they'd kind of clean up. Well, there's, you know, the trays got some left, leftover cups of juice in it. He would grab the cups. He's taking them down. He's, he's downing them as he's going down the steps, you know what I mean, to, to go to the sink and, and clean them out. Now, you know, is he doing anything wrong? I mean, it, uh, he's, you know, I mean, is there anything special about the juice? Is it the juice and the bread that, that's meaningful? Or is it why we're doing it and the fact that we're doing it in obedience? And You see, it, you, you, you could ask the same thing. You know, I, uh, my, my boys, when they were very young, uh, I, you know, they, they loved to swim. We, we'd buy them a little kid swimming pool there and they're baptizing each other. Does it count? Should we stop them? Right? I mean, they're, they're just, you know, so, so anyway, I, we had some people got upset over this kid. They saw this kid like, you wouldn't believe what this kid's doing. And I'm like, well, you know, is that, you know, is that worse? Because what's he going to do when they get downstairs with it? They're going to throw it away. So is, it, is that less of a problem? <laughs> I mean, it's either going to go in the garbage can or it's going to go down his gullet. And, you know, he, he, to him, he's not trying to be insulting or dishonorable. And, and then so, but sometimes you get, have you ever been in a congregation that does closed communion? Okay, some of us have, some of us haven't. You, who, know, who doesn't know what I'm talking about? Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, closed communion is if you're not a member of the church, they don't even offer it to you. Okay, so if you go to visit a congregation, they have closed communion, they don't know who you are, they won't even pass it out to you. So you don't get to participate. Okay, and so, but, but here's the thing. I, I've seen in congregations where if somebody came in and that person's not a Christian, we're passing around the communion plates, uh, they, they grab the tray and they take it, you know, 
uh, well, that's a problem, you know, and so what are we going to do with that? Or I've seen where someone comes in, like, you know, we're right in the middle of town, so we'll get kids come into the church building on a Sunday morning. And so the, we pass around the plates. They don't know what they're doing. Their mom and dad's not with them. They didn't come with uncle or aunt or grandma and grandpa. They're just sitting in the pew. So when the plate comes to them, what are they going to do? What everybody else was doing. So they take it. And so, and, and so what do we do? I mean, do, we, do, you, do you halt everything? Stop it? Embarrass them? And, you know, well, you know, I've had people argue, say, well, they're going to drink condemnation to themselves. Well, here's the thing. Are they saved? So are they condemned already? Can you be doubly condemned? I mean, if someone takes the Lord's Supper and they're not a Christian, are they, is there a worse hell for them because they did that? I see, it doesn't make them any worse. You know what I mean? It doesn't put them in a worse position. They're still outside of Christ. And, and so, the, now, how, is there a right way to handle that situation? Yes. Take the kid. I, I like to take the kids in our congregation, um, especially when they're little. I like to get them at a time where I can have the whole church building, you know. And so I'll, we'll come up to the baptistry and uh, we'll let the kids feel the water, touch the water, you know, see it's, this ain't special water. You know, in Glencoe, our water's disgusting. I mean, the town, I mean, it's, it is, dist- I don't know that you can walk on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, there's stuff in that water. Uh, it's not very good. Uh, it's not the water that saves, I mean, we're saved by the water, but it's our faith in the working of God through baptism, right? And so there's nothing special about the water itself. And it's good to inform kids of that. This isn't mystical, superstitious kind of, you know, let's not treat God's things like superstitious things, okay? And so it's a, it's a great lesson to teach them, hey, we do this because this is what God told us to do, but it's not the water that does it. I mean, you could do it in a swimming pool. Baptism can happen in a creek, in a pond. doesn't matter. Uh, you just need water. You know, I take them down. You know, I, I had our kids, we made the unleavened bread one Sunday and let them eat it as a snack for Sunday school. We weren't having communion. We, were, we talked about the Passover and talked about how God had to make this. And, you know, and I wanted them to understand it's not like the adults get to have a snack in the middle of the service and the kids don't get to I wanted them to see number one it's tasteless and so you know because they're curious I mean they're like what is this and why can't I have it and so we talked about we talked about this is something that when you become a Christian is going to be very very important to you very very important to the Lord but you know there's nothing special about it's grape juice it's tasteless bread Uh, flavorless bread and uh you know and so they you know we we let them have a cup of more you know we got them all grape juice to for a snack and they made some unleavened bread and got to eat it well you you know you ever ate unleavened bread then when it wasn't the lord's supper i honestly don't know that i have or i would choose to but the point is there's nothing wrong with eating unleavened bread and so i was trying to get them to see this is just this is what it is and so kind of taking the mystery away from it you know, and using it as a teaching opportunity. And I think that's good to do because kids especially kind of get this kind of superstitious kind of mentality about the church building, about the, the preacher, about the, the Lord's Supper, about Baptist, all these sorts of things. And so you, we're not trying to, to take the emphasis away from it. We're trying to put it on, on what actually matters in that moment. And so, you know, you, you got kids that come in, they don't know any better, teach them. Don't, don't make them feel bad, but te- they don't, they can only, people only know what they know. I, I don't expect people from the world to know what's going on. And so, you know how weird our church service is to someone who's never been to one? 
We're talking about the bread and the, the body and the blood of Jesus in the cup and we're going to pass that around and then now I've got to pay money to sit here because you're going to pass the... I mean, for someone who's not a Christian, this whole thing is very strange, you know? And, and, and so what's the solution? We either try to make it to where it's more seeker-friendly for people that don't understand it or you're going to have to have to take the time to sit down with people that don't understand it and teach them what's going on. Now, unfortunately, a lot of congregations decide we're just going to take the emphasis off all of these things so that it doesn't, uh, you know, that, that it's more seeker-friendly for people that don't understand. But the right thing to do is teach people. Teach people what's going on, you know. Um, and so, yeah, if someone lo- is lost and they're going to take the Lord's Supper when you pass it around, they're not taking the Lord's Supper. They may be eating a cracker and drinking some juice, but they're, they're not taking the Lord's Supper. You know, it's, it's something that is for uh, those who are set apart, right? Those who are in Christ, those who are priests before God. And so anybody can eat a cracker, anybody can drink some juice, but a Christian is the only person who can take the Lord's Supper in the presence of God and in that fellowship. And so that's important to know. And baptism is the same thing. Anybody can, you know, I think about that there in Acts 8 when the eunuch said, what prevents me from being baptized? If baptism is just you're dry and then you get wet and then you come back out. If that's all there is to it, anybody can get baptized. But if it's more than that, if it's putting you in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, if that's what puts you in Christ, if it removes your sins and and there you receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then what may prevent someone from being baptized is a lack of faith or a lack of repentance you know, a lack of seriousness in their life about the devotion necessary to follow the Lord and be His disciple. You know, those, those things would prevent someone from being baptized. Um, but nothing prevents someone from just getting in the water. You see what I'm saying? And so, so same, same idea there. So, so anyway, uh, again, it, important. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. That needs to be stressed. It needs to be taught. Um, but sometimes we jerk hard the other direction and then, you know, well, you're not a Christian. And so, you're not, you know... Um, Take those people aside, talk to them, teach them. You know, don't be ashamed to do that either. You know, they're confused. I mean, if, if someone is sitting there taking it and they don't know any better, you think they want to stay ignorant? I mean, what happens, you know, when you finally get to sit down and share with them the gospel and, you know, and they become a Christian and that comes up, they're going to probably wonder, why didn't you say something to me? Why'd you let me sit there and, you know, look stupid for the last six months, you know, and, and everybody looking at me like, why is he doing it? He doesn't know what he's doing. I, I don't want to be ignorant. I, I, don't, I assume most people don't want to be ignorant, you know, but we're always so scared we're going to hurt someone's feelings that we'd rather people stay ignorant than, than just share with them the truth. And that's, boy, that's not very helpful, is it? Okay, so obviously, you know, the connection here with the Lord's Supper, uh, there's a lot of uh, similarities here, and I've lost my... I lost my pointer. It wasn't working anyway. It does click the slides, though, yeah. I have my keys for some reason, in case I need to make a getaway. I found it. All right, so the Lord's Supper. Obviously, the the similarities are pretty easy to see, right? We've got unleavened bread, okay? Um, How do we know that that, uh, the Lord's Supper should be taken with unleavened bread and unleavened juice? Okay, and how do we know that, though? Okay, and what happened to all the yeast? Or leaven? 
Yeah, it was, it was out. All of it was taken out of the whole house for the whole week. And it wasn't like you put it aside and brought it back in. Okay, now us, you know, when, if we want yeast leaven, we go to the store, we usually get the little packet, whatever, you can mix it into things. But, but you all done the friendship bread, that thing seems to be going around again, that's real popular. Uh, you know, you start with a lump, right, and you kind of tear that off and, you know, you share that around, all that. Is there a story I'm missing? It's going around. It's going around right now? Yeah. Who in here has done the friendship bread in the last year? Let's see, okay. Two years, two years, three, Okay. It'll, it's coming around. All right. Well, you don't want to be the one to break it. You know what I mean? Like it's been, you know. <laughs> so, but anyway, the way, but, but you know, like it's a big deal back then because you'd have, you know, you'd have this, this lump of leavened dough and that's what you tear off to make your bread and, and all that sort of thing. Well, when it was time for the Passover, you, you cast it all out of your house. You didn't bring it back in. Every bit of leaven had to leave. And then you had to start with a new lump of dough. Okay, and so that's a big deal. And so would it have even been possible for the Lord's Supper to be wine, fermented wine? Or, or uh, you know, have you ever been where the communion is this big, huge lump of like big, freshly baked, you know, thing and everyone's tearing it off and soaking it in the... You ever seen that? Okay, so that's, we, that doesn't work. It doesn't line up with the pattern, okay? Unleavened, right? And so wouldn't have been fermented wine, uh, wouldn't have been a big loaf of, of fluffy bread, okay? It would have been tasteless, you know, uh, unleavened bread. It would have been um, fruit of the vine, as is what the Bible actually says there. That's important too. So anyway, um, why no leaven? Why is leaven always... Uh, yeah, it's symbolic of sin. Always has been. Always has been, all right? Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why, you know, a little bit starts to spread, you know, those sorts of things. You know, 1 Corinthians talks a good a bit about that. Uh, it's taken every week, okay? Uh, the, the, the bread of uh, presence on the showbread was consumed weekly by the priests. The Lord's Supper is consumed once a week, not once a quarter, not once a year, not once every six months, uh, once a week. It's weekly ordeal, okay? And so that's, that's important as well. And uh, where, 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 where's a scripture verse for that? Anyone know off the top of their head? Very good. Yeah, Acts 27. All right, the, you know, came together for on the first day of the week, right? So that's the example that we have. Uh, where's it eat, eaten? It, it's eaten uh, in the presence of the Lord, right? And so, you know, there's a reason we call it communion, it's, it's a sharing. There's a fellowship there. And so, um, you know, and that's, that's important as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. Let's turn there real quick. Matthew 26, verse 29. <clears throat> when you're there, say, got it. Okay. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay? Now, what is the kingdom? The church. Okay? So, when is the Lord taking it with them new in the kingdom? Huh? I'm sorry when the church began, right? And so this isn't something, well, one day we'll be in heaven and we'll be able to do this with the... Every first day of the week, the kingdom comes together and assembles 
and we fellowship in, the, in, in taking the Lord's Supper, He is there with us. His hand is with ours on the table. Okay, and so that's, that, that's the kingdom, right? The church is the kingdom. And so this, this began uh, on, the, on the first Lord's Day that, uh, that the church began there. And so, um, and then of course it's, uh, it's for Christians, right? It, it, you had to be in a holy place to partake of it. Um, you know, the blood of the covenant. How can you participate in, in it if you're not part of the covenant? Okay, now when we're reading through um, you know, the instructions there about, uh, you know, the, the, the bread. We saw that it was a memorial, and we also saw that it, was, uh, it, that it had to do with the covenant. And those two things are things that we want to talk about for sure. Um, but uh, let's, let's hit this up first, because I don't think, uh, you know, we're going to take a break in like 10 minutes, and so I don't want to get into that just yet. Um, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, They came together for the breaking of bread. Now, let, you know, let's, let's, let's talk about that specifically. I've had a lot of people argue with me about when we should take the Lord's Supper and how often we should take the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is an ever-going, ongoing debate. Um, several years ago, I was asked to preach at, at one of our churches uh, down in eastern Kentucky, and the guy that asked me to come in there was real excited to have me preach. And, uh, and told me what sermon he wanted me to preach. I was preaching a revival somewhere else, and he's like, that sermon, they need that down there. And so came in, we were all excited about it. And in the sermon, like this wasn't even what the sermon was about, but we were identifying what it means to be ungodly in the sermon, okay? Now, ungodly is one of those terms that we have made become a lot worse than what it is, right? If, if, someone, doesn't, if someone is unqualified, what do they not have? Yeah, they're missing the qualifications, right? If someone is untalented, what is it they don't have? They have no talents, okay? So if someone is ungodly, what's missing in their life? God, that's it. That's all that means. So, you know, we think ungodly. We think like Hitler and, you know, the, uh, you know, stuff, you know, the worst of the, ungodly means you're operating without God in your life. And so a lot more common than you might think. Might even, might even be something that creeps into the church sometime is some ungodly behaviors, right? Because God's not the motivator and the reason we're doing things. And so as an example of this, I bring up a preacher I know. Okay, and for years there, his congregation would meet together on Christmas Eve and have a big communion service. Okay, now where do you think they got that idea at? Yeah, Catholics, that's what their mass is, right? And Christmas is, is, is uh, you know, that's what they do, right? And so anyway, so his church had a big uh, Christmas Eve communion service. Now, if Christmas Eve happens to be on the first day of the week, go for it. Okay? But if it's not on the first day of the week, we've got a problem because the Lord's Supper is, you know, we're to come together on the first day of the week. And so, you know, for years he'd been doing this. Uh, you know, their church was doing it on Tuesday night, Wednesday, whatever night it was, and it was always a big loaf of bread. You'd tear it, you know, and dip it in probably real wine that night because it was a special communion. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, and, but at the time, he wasn't the preacher. He was, he was uh, an associate or a youth minister or something. And every year I'd say, you, you know, what are you going to do about this? He's like, well, I know it's not right, but I'm not in a position to do anything about it, okay? Well, one year he becomes the evangelist there. The preacher leaves, and they, they you know, and he becomes the evangelist. Evangelist, and, and so I called him up. I said, "Hey, you know, I said it's uh, what are you into?" He's like, "Oh, getting stuff ready for a Christmas Eve service." And jokingly, I said, "Well, you're not you're not getting stuff ready for your communion, are you?" And he got real quiet. I said, "What's going on?" He said, "Well, I know it ain't right, but it's what everybody wants." 
and I told him, what about what God wants? You know, when is it ever okay for everybody to get what they want, but the Lord doesn't get what he wants? That's not how it works. It's not our church. You know, it's his church. And, um, and anyway, so sure enough, he went ahead. They had a big, their big communion service on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night for Christmas. And, and again, and the point of, the, of what I was preaching on is the fact that he knew that wasn't right. So what motivated him to do it was pleasing people rather than God. And I said, that's an ungodly motivation, right? That that's an example of ungodliness that crept into the church at that moment. And nobody heard anything else I said in the sermon, <laughs> okay? Um, and as soon as I get done, uh, I got a guy come storming down the aisle coming to set me straight, okay? Because you can take the Lord's Supper any day of the week you want. And their idea was, as long as you take it on Sunday, there's nothing wrong with taking it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday also. Which is, that's a new one. I've, I've, I've never heard that before. Um, and so we start talking about this. And what, what, what I found out was, you know, their congregation was accustomed to, uh, if a couple's getting married, we're going to have communion at the wedding. You know, um, you know we're going to dedicate the new building <laughs> with the communion service. You know, that, all of that sort of stuff. And my, my whole point was, where's that at in the scripture? You know, why, you know we come together, uh, do this in remembrance of me. You know, we do this to proclaim his death until he comes. We don't do this because we're having a wedding. We don't do this because we're, we're dedicating a new building. Um, that seems to be cheapening it and turning it into a superstition like it's some lucky rabbit's foot or something. And as long as we do this, then God's going to bless what we're doing, that sort of a thing. Um, anyway, this, this caused a whole lot of problem. I became the bad guy over there and, and was talked to sternly by several people. Uh, and that that was the end of that. But but anyway, I was shocked because I've always thought, well, you know, the Church of Christ, if we've got anything figured out, it's the Lord's Supper and baptism by now, surely. We've got this figured out. And so I was shocked because this was a congregation that seemed to be respectable and a lot of people there that everyone would have assumed would have had these things figured out. And, um, and, and anyway, so uh, I, was, I wasn't welcomed there, <laughs> you know, when this was all over with. And, um, and one of the guys, one of the preachers there sat me down and said, um, you know, Ethan, I, I, you know, you, you're really wrong on this. And I know that because I, I take the Lord's Supper privately throughout the week. And so I know it's okay to do that. And then got up and left. I didn't let me talk <laughs> any further with that. So, so here's the thing. In Acts chapter 20, what was the reason they came together? To break bread. Now, they had a guest speaker that night, right? I mean, Paul, Paul came in, big deal, right? Big deal to have Paul in. You know, and they didn't come together because Paul was there. They didn't come together because Paul was preaching. Right? They didn't come together because someone fell out the window that night and died and that was interesting and so let's go, go hear about it. You know, I mean, they came together because it was the first day of the week and what does the church do on the first day of the week? They break, the, they break bread. Now, is it a private affair? Say, well, they came together to take it, Right? So it seems like this is, you know, and this, this is something, you know, it's between you and God, but it's, it's there's, there's so very, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I got to think about this a little further, but I'm not sure that there's really any part of Christianity that's just between you and God. I would argue that it's all between you, God, and a fellowship of believers. You know? The body of Christ. Yeah, and so, you know, we, we, well, we, you know your, your prayer, but we also pray together. Right? So that's something we're also supposed to pray. We pray for one another as well. You know, and so, and, and so there's maybe aspects of prayer, and there's certain, certainly aspects of it you do on your own. Um, but you, know, there's, you, you can't isolate 
you know, the Lord's Supper seems to be something we do in fellowship, right? It's, it's they came together for the breaking of bread. And when, when, when COVID hit, this was, my, this was my concern about everyone going online, is that how do you come together when you're not together? You know, and, and so I, you know, I, I was fine for that for a Wednesday night Bible study or something like that, but I, I, I had issue, you know, and, and it's over with. Everyone did what they did, but a lot of congregations threw in the towel and just refused to meet at all on a Sunday morning. And I, 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 I couldn't rationalize how in the world we're, we're getting around. They came together for the breaking of bread. And so, you know, everything else, yeah, maybe we can do from, from home if you wanted to. It's kind of hard to fellowship and encourage that way, but you, you can do it if you put in the effort. But to come together for the breaking of bread, I didn't see a way around that. You know, you, you can't come together virtually, <laughs> you know, for that, I, I don't think. But, but anyway, that's all over with. Hopefully everybody, my goodness, hopefully everyone's back to meeting in person by now. Um, but... Uh, but they came together for the breaking of bread. And so, you know, that w- that's important. Now, if, if they came together for the breaking of bread, let me ask you this. Who then is the, is the, is the assembly for? Okay, well, it's to, in, in for, to glorify God and His name, but is, is it something that's for Christians or non-Christians? Okay, so the assembly, they came together for the breaking of bread. So that, that assembly, that coming together was, was set up for Christians. Now, what happens in the assembly? Well, we are, you know, are we to sing together when, when we come together? Well, it says, you know, we're, we're to, we are to sing to one another. So it's, at some point, we've got to do that somehow, right? And so we have to be together for that. Um, should there be uh, public uh, exhortation from the Word of God? Yeah, that's something that needs to happen. Okay, according to, to Ephesians, you know, we've got, we've got teachers, uh, you know, uh, teaching pastors. We've got evangelists, teaching elders, and we have evangelists. Uh, what's, what's their function in the church? What are, they, what are they here for? To equip the saints for their work of service. And so on a Sunday morning, you know, we've got an assembly. It seems like a whole lot of those things we can, we can, we can, we can check off. We can say, well, we're here. We gotta, we're supposed to sing with one another anyway. Let's do that while we're here, right? We're supposed to pick up a collection when we come together. That's, that's, we're already here. That makes sense, right? Public exhortation of the word while we're here, right? We, you know, we, we come together for breaking of bread. That's the purpose. But, you know, I would argue that even the sermon is supposed to be directed toward who? the church, right? And so this, this is getting a little off topic here, but let me ask you something, you know, if you, if you think about it, okay, should evangelism happen during the church assembly? Yeah, I, I would exactly agree with that. I, I, you know, the focus of the church assembly, you know, the church assembly is there to equip everyone to be evangelistic, to equip everyone to strengthen their, their Christian lives, to walk in their faith. The preaching on a Sunday morning should be directed toward the saints to equip the saints for their work of service. And evangelism should happen in every one of our lives every day of the week. It should be a lifestyle. It's not something you turn on and on, turn off. I mean, it's a way of living being evangelistic. And, 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 and I, I can prove that. You can go through the scriptures. You can look at Jesus, the lives that he impacted. He didn't, they're just the people he met. 
on, a, on the way to the temple, on the way back to Judea, you know, I mean, just on his way doing whatever he was doing, he, he was evangelistic. It's not like he sat out one day and said, let's go call in for the next hour and see who we run into. You know, he was just being evangelistic as he lived his life, you see? And so that's, that's something to think about. But how many churches have turned the church assembly into the only evangelistic tool we have? Okay, and when that happens, who's the focus of the assembly? The lost. Right? They, they, you know, and so what's the preaching aimed at? So what, what, you know, in a congregation like that, what do you hear every week? The same sermon, right? We never get past the plan of salvation. We're never growing. We're not getting any deeper. We're not getting in because that's all, that's all we can hear because we're hoping someone invited someone that's going to come in, hear the message preached, come up, make a decision, and then you invite someone out. You know, when really it should be every one of us going out Monday through Saturday, all week long, sharing the gospel with the people in our lives, with the people we run into, with our families, with our friends, with our neighbors. You know, and, and get the ball rolling out there. And so coming together on a Sunday morning, on a, on a Tuesday night, for example, should be time to get built up for that work, right? And so the Lord's Supper for Christians, should we, should we do something to make that less weird for, for people who aren't Christians? I mean, I've heard of congregations where they don't even offer it anymore. It's in the back room on your way out if you want it. I mean, is that the right, is that the right mindset? Okay? <clears throat> and so, you know... Like I said, I'm not saying it's bad for someone to show up on a Sunday morning. And I mean, I became a Christian that way. My family just showed up one Sunday. I think I told that story. My brother was after a girl. We went to the church the girl went to. And uh, boom, we stayed. You know, and it, it was, yeah, he never got the girl. Uh, but we found the Lord. So praise the Lord for that. All right. So, um, so anyway, like I said, it can happen. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, and take advantage of those opportunities. But don't, don't turn the church meeting into an evangelistic tool because that's not what God set it up for. Okay. Now, like I said, it, it's nice when that can happen. I never preach a sermon without bringing up the plan of salvation. I'll, you'll never hear me preach a sermon where I don't preach the plan of salvation at the end. But, uh, you know, I don't preach a sermon specifically for lost people. I, I'm preaching for, for, for the church to build them up, to edify, to rebuke, to, to challenge, to get, get the church motivated to get out and do that work, you know. And so anyway, it's, it's real important that we, you know... Um, we, we, we remember what these things are for, what the pattern's for, and we don't, we don't try to, you know, when we try to make all of this about, about lost people, it's, it's trying to get ourselves off the hook for our own responsibility, and it, it really does a lot of damage. It's, it's the reason a lot of congregations won't grow is because we, we, we just keep cycling the same message over and over, and we never get into anything deeper, and, you know, and it's, it's a lot harder to just hope someone comes through the door than it is for everyone to get out and be evangelistic and make, make a difference that way. All right, let's take a break. <clears throat> Okay, so um, let's, let's talk about this here. A uh, couple verses I want to throw out there. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. Hebrews 13, 10. What is it? Who wrote Hebrews? God did. <laughs> All right, Hebrews 13, 10 tells us... Um, Okay, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Okay, now what he's talking about is, is Christians have an altar that the Old Testament priests don't, aren't even allowed to eat from. Okay, and so 
the, the, what we're talking about is there is a privilege that the New Testament priest, the Christian, has that even the Old Testament priest did not. Okay, now part of that, you know, and now we, we, there's, there's a bigger picture to that than just what we're talking about, but when we come together for the Lord's Supper, right, that table of showbread is in his presence, it's a, it's a memorial, and it's, it's a covenant. I want to talk a little bit before we run out of time tonight about the memorial and about the covenant. So to make this kind of quick, I want to throw out some, some verses of scripture here. Um, let's look at... Um, Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11:24. We'll start there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 24. When you're there say got it. Okay. It says here and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. Okay? Now in Luke chapter 20 no wait, um Is that the right verse? Oh boy. I think we've got to go to Luke 22 here. I may have wrote something down wrong. Is it right? Oh, look at this. JR knows where I'm going, I think. Did he? Verse 19. Yeah, when he had given or taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I've not heard very often anybody really talk about what this means. But, you know, every, every Lord's Supper table I've seen, yep, this one too, this do in remembrance of me. And so, you know, this idea of in memory of okay that's that's what I want to talk about there's there's a greek word that's used in both of these accounts in 1 Corinthians and in Matthew and it's it's not the word that we would expect the the holy spirit to have used for this idea of a, of a, of a memorial or in remembrance and so um to, you, this will make sense in a second Matthew 26 let's turn there real quick i know we're all over the place here Matthew 26, verse 13. Okay, this is not about the Last Supper. This is not about, um, uh, you know, this is not about communion. Uh, but this is, this is uh, in verse 13, this is when, um, you know, the, the, the perfume is poured out on Jesus, okay? In verse 13 of Matthew 26, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That is the word that we would expect the Holy Spirit to use for in memory of, right? And which is how it's translated there. Whenever the gospel's preached, right, in, in memory of this woman, right? So there's there's this idea of in memory of. And so, you know, you can think about what that means. You know, there's things that we do today in memory of something, right? Or, or people will do things, uh, you know, sometimes people will create, uh, will put something on their truck or they'll set a, you know, sometimes we see roadside monuments set up in memory of people who've died there, things like that. The word that's used about the Lord's Supper is different in the Greek than to do something in memory of. The word that's used in the Greek in 1 Corinthians 11 and Matthew 20, Matthew or in Luke 22:19 is ana, anamnesis, I believe is how you would say it in the Greek. It does not mean in memory of. It means now you may want to write this down. It's a it's a kind of a mouthful. An affectionate calling of the person himself to mind. 
an affectionate calling of the person to mind. I don't have the Greek down. The My English, I wrote A-N-A-M-N-E-S-I-S. But that may be Ethan <laughs> just writing down how it felt like it sounds. But when we're done, hey, Chris, remind me as soon as we're done, I can pull it up on my laptop back there. I've got it back there. Um, so, uh, but anyway, so, so you, like I said, you could think about this for a minute, how doing something in memory of is a little different than taking the Lord's Supper to bring about an affectionate calling of Christ to our mind, right? That's, that's very different, isn't it, than just we do this in memory of Jesus. You know what I mean? It's, we're actually trying to call a very, very personal, affectionate, you know, uh, of that person to our mind there. So, um, uh, so anyway, there's, there's, there's that. So that's the, that's the memorial aspect of that that I want to talk about. Next thing I want to talk about here, and I, I, I'm sorry we're being jumbled up a little bit, but I, I, uh, we, we lost, uh, we went over our cookie. There's a peanut butter cookie back there that just, I lost my mind over. And so, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, let's talk about the covenant for a minute. Um, there's, uh, what do we know about covenants? Uh, covenant's not something we, we, we do a lot with today. Uh, you know, it's not a word we use a lot today if you're not in the church. Um, it's not a word that, that comes across in your day-to-day conversations probably. And, um, you know, what's, what's, what do we have today that everyone might be familiar with that would be a covenant? Okay, marriage. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I heard contract from a, from several, but I'm really gonna just make fun of Jake on this. Okay, so let's talk. Good. This is this is perfect. It's what I wanted to get into. Let's talk about. I, 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 well, I do. Uh, <laughs> um, Let's, you know, before we can get into this idea of the covenant, we got to kind of define terms. And, you know, there is, like, I think today we generally try to think of a, of a covenant like a contract, okay? And, and Jake proved that just a second ago. Um, but I, I, I want us to think a little deeper into it than that because I really think contract is a horrible way to think about a covenant, okay? Uh, and so let's, here's the thing. A covenant is an agreement between two parties that involves promises and vows. Well, you could say that's also a contract, couldn't you? Okay. Um, and, so, and so, but that's, that's kind of how, how we would basically define a covenant. It's, it's an agreement between two parties that involves promises and vows to one another. There's a whole lot more to a covenant than that. Um, there's usually a, a, a greater than and a lesser than party in a covenant, uh, but that's kind of, uh, you know, boy, you're, you're walking on thin water when you start calling marriage a covenant then. Um, but there's biblical things that we can bring up there as well. Uh, but contract itself, though. Okay, let's think about the why covenant is not a contract. What is a contract based on? Maybe that's a bad question. Why, wh- when, where are some examples where we need contracts today? Well, what kind of contracts have you all entered into? Your house? Is that what you said? Okay. Anything else? Contracts that we've entered into. You contract at work? Will. A will? Okay. Did you? Yeah. Short. I get it. That's not good, but I get it. <laughs> um, how about anybody, uh, cell phones, right? Anybody enter in a cell phone contract? Huh? 
a purchase of some sort. Okay, uh, how about, you know, we hear about it with sports a lot, though. I mean, Jake's not off there, right? I mean, we hear about uh, players entering in contracts with their teams there. Um, you ever hear about someone getting out of their contract? Well, you know, okay, so, you know, those, so anyway, so these are all things that, now, you know, why, why you know, internet providers, uh, phone services, cell phone providers, things like that, uh, buying a car, you enter into a, contact, a contract, uh, if you can't pay for it, okay, you enter into a contract. And so, um, why is a contract needed to buy a car you can't afford? Okay, lack of trust that you're very good. Now we're on to something, okay? Why would your cell phone provider want to make a contract with you? They don't trust you, okay? Uh, you, we, we seeing a theme here? Okay, why would a ball player enter into a contract? Why can't they just play without a contract? Don't trust them to go off and find a better deal? Okay, things like that. Okay, so what, what is the basis of needing a contract then? Okay, to protect the seller. How, how about this? A lack of trust, right? I mean, in general, we need a contract because we don't trust each other. Is that why you got married? <laughs> okay, no, let's think about this. Okay, we know, we know a marriage is a covenant relationship. Did you get married because you didn't trust your spouse? I mean, my goodness, could you imagine? I don't trust her, so I'm going to marry her. I mean, that's a disaster waiting to happen, right? And so, you, you know, you married her because you did trust her, right? You married him because you did trust him. And so where a contract is needed because of a lack of trust, a covenant is... So one of the differences between a covenant and a contract and why they're not the same is that a covenant's based on the conditions of the character of the people, right? I mean, so covenant is, is character-based, and a contract is based on conditions, okay? So you think about a marriage again, you know, um, well, you know, as long as you make me dinner every night at five, and the, 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 the one day that you don't have dinner on the table at five, I'm out of here. Is that how a marriage works? Not supposed to, yeah. I mean, those would be pretty rough. I mean, is your marriage based on conditions? They're based, they're based on promises, right? For better, for worse. For sickness and health. Till death do us part. All right, these are vows. These are promises. And you make these vows not because I don't trust this person. So if you don't promise me, you'll be with me from, you know, you make those vows because you trust each other, right? Because there's love in that relationship. So it's based on the character of the people in that marriage. And so a marriage vow is only as good as the character of the people making it, obviously. Uh, but like you don't have that relationship with your cell phone provider, I hope. Um, and so, you know, they, they want you to sign a contract because they don't trust you, right? And so it's based on conditions. Well, what's the conditions? Well, I'll provide you service. You provide this amount of money. What happens when I don't provide my, my money? What happens if they don't provide their service? Yeah, I still got to pay. <laughs> you know, no, but, but you, can, you can get out of the contract, right? And so if someone, and so we hear about that with sports, right? You'll hear where coaches and players enter into a contract and then maybe even if they still have a few years left, well, the conditions of the contract weren't met or the conditions have changed and so we're going to send them down the road. We're going to release the coach from his contract. We hear about that stuff, right? And so a contract is condition-based, but that's not how a covenant works, right? And again, you think about that with your 
marriage. Like, I'm not only, you know, I'm in this because I don't trust you, and so we're going to seal this up with some vows right now. No, you, you, don't, you wouldn't enter into a covenant with someone you don't trust, right? And so it's, it's not based on, on conditions. And so contracts work fine for sales and services, right? I mean, if I don't know you and, and, and I'm going to put something out, I mean, let's sign a contract. Let's do that, right? But, the, you, know, but you, you can't treat the marriage, I'll love you and stay faithful to you as long as I'm getting something out of this or as long as it's still fun, right? That's, that's what happens when you treat a marriage like a contract and it doesn't work. And so a marriage is a covenant relationship. Two parties make a vow. Why did they make the vow? Because, you know... Again, the contract is if I don't live up to, to my end or if I don't trust you to stick around to finish what you start, it gives me a way out. Um, covenant is for better, for worse. So in other words, even if the conditions change in my marriage, I'm not going anywhere. Right? That's the idea. So my marriage is not condition-based. Things get bad, I'm still in it. Right? I get sick, you get sick, I'm not leaving your side. You know, I am in this till death do us part. Okay? That's, that's the idea. And so... Anyway, that's important to know because with a contract, how committed are you to your contract? <laughs> I'm not, I mean, a lot different than a marriage, right? I mean, you've never been as committed to your cell phone provider as you are to your spouse, I hope. Do you see what I mean? So again, another reason to, but like I said, today we just don't have covenants, so we do, we, we do often think of them as contracts, but that's, that's, the, that's a big difference, not the only difference, but that is a big difference is in, in why they're there. Well, there, there's, there's an idea here with, with the Lord's Supper about this being, you know, Jesus said this is the, the cup is the blood of the covenant, the table of, of showbread, that showbread was, was there as, as, you know, because of this covenant. And in Jewish times, in Old Testament times specifically, when two parties made a covenant agreement with one another, once the, the agreement was made, the two parties would, at regular intervals, meet and, and share a meal together. Okay, and so, and this was to show that both parties were still committed to making the covenant work. Does that make sense? And so if a covenant was made, the two parties that made the covenant on regularly scheduled intervals would come together and share a meal and fellowship. And this was to show good faith and, and effort. Into the, we both are committed to making this covenant work. Now, let's think about that with the Lord's Supper. Okay? Is the Lord committed to making it work? Okay? Are you committed to making it work if you don't show up to the regularly scheduled interval uh, times to fellowship with the Lord? To show that you're in this and that you want to make this work too? You see what that says to him? Well, I guess this wasn't that important, you know? Um, and so that's, that's something to think about. There, there's a Greek word that um, shows up in the Bible, and I don't know, there's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament. And I have no idea how to say it, um, but I don't think anyone knows how to say any of these old Hebrew words. I mean, we don't really know how any of them were really pronounced, so you can say it however you want. But it would be, if we wrote it in English, it would be H-E-S-E-D, I believe is how we would spell that. Um, and I think it would be, I would pronounce it um, as Hased. H-E-S-E-D, how I would pronounce it. So that's the right way to do it, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is a word that is found all over the Old Testament. I mean, it is all over the Old Testament. 
but it is, it, it is a difficult word to translate into the English because it is a covenant word. It's a word that is used in covenants. It's about keeping covenants. And, and so because of that, like I said, our culture today, it's not really something, you know, covenant. It, we don't, you don't make covenants with people. It's just, you know, it it's, doesn't happen. You, I mean, your marriage is probably the only covenant really you ever enter into like that, okay? And so these words just don't exist. But the idea of this word exists certainly in a marriage. And, and, and once we see this word, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit you and you're like, I've read this word my whole life. It's everywhere in the Bible. I had no idea that this is what it was referring to, okay? Because it's such a hard word, the, the word, it's, it's, like I said, it's for covenant keeping. It's a covenant word. You, it's kind of translated, it's something like there's mercy and there's love and there's covenant keeping and there's loyalty and there's faithfulness and, and there's effort. All these things are bundled up in the covenant, all right? And so, you know, there's seriousness to it. All of these things are, are in this word. In 1535, okay, uh, Miles Coverdale, ring a bell to anybody? Yeah, I knew that word. I read that word for that name the first time today. Uh, anyway, he was translating the Bible in 1535, and he translated this word loving kindness. And it's been translated that way in most of our Bibles since. And so how often have we read that word before? Loving kindness. It's a made-up word. It's, it's, it's there, you know, there's no, it, loving kindness isn't a real English word. It's not a word that we'd use. It was created for this Hebrew word. It was because we didn't know what to do with this word. We, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the King James uses uh, for Eve was, was Adam's what? His, his helpmate, Right? Why, why did it use helpmate? That's not, uh, that was not like a real word at the time. It was because we didn't know what else to do with that word. You know, like there's, it, it's not, she was, he was more than a partner. You know what I mean? It was more than just a wife, you know, so we had to come up with a word that made some sense there. So helpmate was what we used, you know. Well, this is kind of the same thing. It was a word where we're looking at the Hebrew text, we're looking at the meaning. We don't really have an English word that gets it there. So we came up with loving kindness and that's what we've been using ever since. But the word loving kindness talks about the great lengths that you are willing to go to in order to keep the covenant that you're in. And so you think about your marriage, right? Your loving kindness to your spouse is how far you're willing to go to keep that covenant together, to hold that marriage together, to keep make it work, right? And so, you know, you all who are married or been married, you know, you think about there's been times, I'm sure, where, you know, one spouse or the other maybe start to maybe you know I don't know how to word this without putting everyone in the doghouse here uh, you know where maybe one spouse starts falling behind a little bit with things right so what do you do you get resentful and say well if you're not going to put in effort I'm not either how does that end badly and so what do you do you you pull you pull some extra weight right I mean you put in some extra effort you you go beyond what 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 maybe you would normally do to kind of compensate and help bring everybody back on board you know and that that's how you make a marriage works it, it takes effort you got to work for that doesn't mean you know you don't work to earn your spouse any more than you work to earn your salvation but if you've got a marriage is it worth your effort yeah, and so is your salvation. So is Christianity. It's worth her effort, right? And so there's the idea. But loving kindness is, is specifically about going beyond the boundaries of, of maybe what's necessary 
in order to keep that covenant going with the other party. And so these regularly scheduled intervals, this was kind of a jump start, a, a reminder, a, a, a volt to the chest there to, to hey, let's, let's not let this thing fall behind. Let's remember what we got in this for. Let's, let's pull together to make this thing work. Well, how, how necessary is that in the Christian life? We need that reminder, right? I mean, we, are, we go all week long bombarded with a world that does not care about eternal and spiritual things. We surround ourselves with people and influences that only cares about the temporary. We need reminded that we are in an eternal covenant and that God has loving kindness that knows no bounds and that He's willing to look how far He's been willing to go to make this covenant work with me. I need to put in some effort too, you see? And so that's, that's the idea. But loving kind, and so here's some examples, okay? Um, not just with God. Let's, let's talk about David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan made a covenant, right? And so they had, a, they had a covenant together between the two of them. And we can find that in 1 Samuel 18. Uh, we're, we're not going to go there yet. We're go, turn to 1 Samuel 20. Well, that, that's where we'll pick up in, with this. 1 <clears throat> first, first Samuel uh, chapter 20. Okay, in 1 Samuel 20 is where we're going to read, but in 1 Samuel 18, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, make a covenant with one another. By the time we get to chapter 20, Saul has begun to go a little mad and, and he is actually seeking to kill David, right? So Saul wants David's head. And so uh, they, David and Jonathan try to, they kind of hatch a plan to figure out whether Saul still wants David dead. You know, all these things happen. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, verse 15, what happens is Jonathan is trying to make David remember the covenant that they made. Okay, so 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, it reads this, You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Okay, and so Jonathan is reminding David of the covenant and, and, and specifically, notice he brings up the loving kindness that I, you have got to keep this covenant going with my, with my household. Even after all your enemies are gone, you know, your loving kindness is, is the effort that you're putting into the covenant. Okay? Well, you know, go over to 2 Samuel chapter 9. It is right after 1 Samuel. Yep. <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, by this point, okay, years later, Saul is dead. Jonathan has also been killed. Okay, and Daniel, or David, I'm sorry, David wants to fulfill the covenant. Have I said Daniel this whole time? Okay. Thank you. I, you know, Jake's got that look. Sometimes I can't. <laughs> well, I was going to just say his son. I was going to not say it. Yeah, but I'll just point to you. You can say it. Okay, so in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, listen, David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Well, guess what the word kindness is? It's that hasad or it's, it's loving kindness. He's not just wanting to be nice. To Jonathan's, <laughs> to Jonathan's descendants, he's wanting to express his his uh, effort to keep the covenant with with Jonathan, right? 
And, so, and that's what he does without going further so I don't have to read the son's name. Um, you know, John, he finds Jonathan's son who's a cripple. He's, he's living in hiding, right? He considers himself, uh, you know, a dead dog in this chapter, you know. David brings him into his house and says, for now on you eat at my table, right? And so, th- so my point is you see the effort that David is willing to go through to keep that covenant. That's loving kindness, Right? That's, that's, that's this idea. And so, you know, in marriage, it's the same thing, right? Both, both parties are going to work together to try to keep that covenant going. Well, you know, the Lord's Supper is to bring to mind affectionately this, this, the Christ, you know, to our mind. Uh, so that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the in memory of, right? It's, it's not really in memory of, but to bring, bring affectionately to mind. And then there's this idea of the covenant that, and it, it's not a renewal of the covenant. I've heard that before. That, that's not what this is. That, that, that regularly scheduled meal, you know, they came together for, it wasn't, it wasn't renewing the covenant, but it was, it was to show, um, show forth the loving kindness for the covenant. Right? It was to show that we are both putting effort into this, that this covenant's important to us, that we're, gonna, we're not going to give up on this. And so, you know, that's a way to think about the Lord's Supper that I don't think we ever really get to sometimes, is that me being there, making that important, that's one of the ways I can show my loving kindness to the Lord. And, and you know, I've, there's Scripture, you know, I think that word loving kindness, the, the Hebrew word is there. It's like 120 sometimes, just in like the book of Psalms. It's all over the book of Proverbs, you know, but there's so much in the Bible. And do that this week. Do a little word study. Go through and find that word loving kindness and read about the Lord's loving kindness. And when you think about that, that that is His effort to maintain the covenant that He's made with me. I mean, it changes the whole aspect of that because it's not just well God's love and he's kind to me like it's way more than that it's his effort to keep you with him right his effort to keep this thing going it's it's a huge deal huge deal and so Lord's Supper has some of that going on there for sure I had a bunch of them here we were going to read but I don't know that we have time for that so Okay, um, let's, let's talk a couple other things here about the Lord's Supper before we were completely out of time. Has anyone here ever heard the idea that um, the Lord's Supper is for the forgiveness of your sins? Okay, sometimes we hear this, uh, people will say, well, we come in contact with the blood at the Lord's Supper. What do you, we heard that before? Okay, where do we come in contact with the blood of Christ? At baptism, that's very, very important. Where is forgiveness of sins found? At baptism. It's not found at the Lord's Supper. I've seen, I've seen people who treat it that way. Well, you know, they'll, maybe they've sinned this week and something went wrong and they're just worried to death that Jesus will come back before they can take communion. Is that why we take communion? No, okay. Now, you know, people sometimes we get caught up in this idea of taking it in an unworthy manner. This has nothing to do with with the person taking it being unworthy or not. Okay, it's about the manner that you take it. So let's think of it this way. What is the appropriate manner to take it? Seriously? In remembrance to proclaim his death and bear, you know. So what would be an unappropriate way to take it? Yeah, yeah, where you're not thinking about him, you're not giving him the attention, you know, you, you know, just chug back the juice and the cracker and then you're clipping your fingernails or on your phone or the, 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 the nail clippers during communion, it's the ping, it's the loudest noise I've ever heard in my life. Um, you know, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Oh, it does. It does, brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, we're all very quick. And ping, <laughs> ping. And I'm just trying to figure out where they're going. Um, very distracting. Yeah. So um, anyway, not the time for that. Okay. Do it during the sermon's fine. <laughs> but not, not then. Okay. Uh, so anyway, um, but yeah, I've heard people uh, argue that you know, we come in contact with the blood at the Lord's Supper. No, you know, there, there's a proclamation of the death, the burial, and the resurrection, right? We'll proclaim his death till he returns, which means we're proclaiming the fact that he is returning. It's not just his death there. It's, it's, it's the resurrecting and a returning king as well. That's, that's important. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, yeah, Romans 6 tells us pretty, pretty clearly we come in contact with the blood. Here's the other thing, you know, where's sin dealt with? It's not dealt with in here, is it? So we can't have our sins forgiven at the table. Sins are forgiven out here, okay? We need a sacrifice and we need to be cleansed, okay? And so that's, that's really important to know. Um, and so, you know, uh, there's, there's a doctrine out there, believe it or not, it's in the Church of Christ. I've heard it recently. I've heard it in some of our congregations. Uh, I've heard where the preachers have come up and, and, and they'll say, um, they've, they've, they've actually said that they, uh, the blood is reapplied at communion. Have you ever heard that? Okay, the blood is reapplied at communion. How many times? He died once for all. I don't need it reapplied. It was good the first time. You see what I mean? Uh, I've heard him say that, you know, we, we, uh, our covenant's renewed at the Lord's Supper. I've heard him say our sins are forgiven at the Lord's Supper. In our churches, preachers, you know, popular preachers have said these things. Uh, and so, you know, pay attention to that stuff. I don't even know that they think about what they're saying. You know, I think this is something they've probably heard and, and they're repeating it, you know. Um, but they're, they're, this is a doctrine that was started. Uh, you can trace it back to a Church of Christ preacher a long time ago. It's something he called the seven-day covenant where, where he actually taught that the covenant that we enter into with Christ is good for seven days and has to be renewed. Um, yeah, it's not biblical, okay, but that's where those, those, those phrases come from that. Now, I don't think the people saying them today are associating them with that, but that's, you know, if you want to figure out where it came from, that's, that's where, it, where it comes from. Um, here's the other thing. This bread of the presence is, is holy to the Lord. It's special. It's unique. Um, you know, it was in the presence of the Lord, those sorts of things. Have we heard the argument that if you take the Lord's Supper every week, it's no longer special? Okay, yeah. So, you know, um, you know I bet they pick up an offering every week. <laughs> you know, uh, aren't they worried it's not special anymore if they do that? Uh, but, uh, yeah, here's the thing. You know, th this, this bread, like I said, the priests weren't going to make a sandwich with it. it. It wasn't common bread. You know, it's special bread. And people are worried today about it becoming a habit. Now, that, and that's what we hear, you know, especially from the denom denominational cra crowd. Well, you, it'll become a habit. Let me tell you something. Um, since the day I became a Christian, my habit is to take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. That doesn't make it any less biblical, scriptural, or important. But it should be your habit too. You know what I mean? All a habit means is you are in the, the practice of doing it, on, you know, on a schedule, on a routine. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong. Do you brush your teeth every day? Maybe some of you don't want to answer that. <laughs> Jake, you brush your teeth every day, brother? It's not special. Okay. But is it a habit? Does that make it less important? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you, you, you kiss your wife or your husband goodbye when they leave for work in the morning? Just your wife? <laughs> so, uh, do that every day? Yeah, does that make it less special? No, yeah. And I would argue that the Lord's Supper means more to me now 
than it did when I first was a Christian. So it's not become less special to me at all. You know, it's, it's if anything, it's become even more special to me now. You know, and so, um, so that's, you know, that's, that's a silly argument. Um, you know, observing the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day doesn't make it less of a special event, and it should be a habit. Habit doesn't mean it's not scriptural. Um, you know, here's the other thing. Um, you know, we take it on the Lord's Day on the first day of the week because what day did he, did he raise from the grave? First day of the week. And so, you know, when, when, if we were going to have a memorial for 9-11, what day would we do it on? 9-11. You see, so why, why, you know, why would we do it any other day but on the first day of the week? Right? We are, we are proclaiming, you know, a resurrected king. We do it on the day he rose from the grave. And so, um, you know, we do that every first day of the week. And so that's, that's important too. And again, it's not a lucky charm. You know, um, we, we see that happen a lot. You know, uh, it was never intended to be any of that. Um, I think that's a good place to stop.